Good evening everyone. It's good to be here with you. Thank you so much for choosing to come out tonight to the Is God For Real program. As uh, Ben has mentioned before, this is part of a series and uh, I'm sure you've seen the brochure and uh, there are six uh, sessions in this series that are advertised in this brochure and in a way this series really is a result of my own Uh, exploration, I guess, into this particular series of topics. And so tonight's topic, to begin with, we're going to ask the question, does God exist? These are questions that I myself uh, have asked. In fact, uh, I grew up in the UK, as was mentioned before. I lived there for 26 years before coming over to Australia. I actually came here as a backpacker and uh, met my wife and uh, eventually have been here for the last 25 years. So Uh, I've sort of spent half my life in Australia, half of my life in the UK. But I grew up in a secular home in the UK, and I would have called myself an an atheist. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe it was necessary for God to exist. And uh, part of this series is the journey that I have been made, uh, I guess that I've made in the last several years. A few years ago, in fact, uh, the very year that I was born, should I tell you when that was? (laughs) No, nobody wants to know. That's good. Well, Time Magazine had a cover which had the headline, Is God Dead? And uh, that was in the 60s, so that's a clue. Um, but the, the idea of the magazine article was not so much that God had been alive and then he'd suddenly died, but the question was, is the idea of God dead in Western culture? That was the question it was asking way back in the 60s. And so I guess the idea of God in the Western world has been retreating for many. Um, And people have seen that or they have come to the conclusion that God is irrelevant and no longer a part of their, their lives. It doesn't make sense to have God in their life. Does God exist? And the other question that I think is equally as important is does it matter? Does it matter whether God exists or not? I used to not believe in God and I used to think it didn't matter whether you believed in God or not. And uh, we want to explore that. I guess it must matter to you because you chose to come to a series called Is God For Real? It must matter in some sense to you. But we want to explore that. Does God exist and does it in fact matter whether God exists or not? To begin with, we'll just look at some of terms. Atheist, agnostic and theist. An atheist is someone who does not believe in God, who believes that there is no God in the universe. And I would have called myself in my early 20s an atheist. And uh, I remember uh, growing up and uh, I had a friend whose family used to go to church and that was unusual for me because I didn't know any other friends who were of that nature. And I used to give him a hard time and say, how can you possibly believe in God? But I would have called myself an atheist. In reality, I probably was the second one an agnostic. And an agnostic is someone who doesn't know whether there is evidence for God or not. They're not sure. And I guess I would have been more in that category. You see, I haven't met too many hardcore atheists. My brother calls himself an atheist. He was recently over here at Christmas time from the UK. And we have some interesting conversations. And, uh, but he calls himself an atheist. But You see, I suppose if you think about our perspective as human beings, there's about seven and a half billion of us on the planet, and our planet is but a speck of dust in our solar system, which is a speck of dust in our galaxy, which is a speck of dust in the vast expanse of the universe. 
And for us, in our very limited uh, observation to declare that there is no God in the universe is perhaps a little bold for somebody to be able to declare that. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about myself because I would have said that myself. But how much can we actually know from our limited perspective? So atheist doesn't believe in God. An agnostic doesn't know. And then, of course, there's theist, one who does believe in God. And I today am a theist. I do believe in God. Now, when you look at that word theist, there's a whole host of other terms that we could probably put under there because as important a question as does God exist is, probably an equally important question is if God does exist, what kind of God exists? If, if there is a God in the universe, what is that God like? What kind of a God is there if indeed uh, a God exists? Because uh, we could put, for instance, the word deist up there. A deist is someone who believes that there is a God, God wound up the universe like a clock and then let it run and walked away. In other words, a, a deist believes in a God that there is a God that exists, but it's not a personal God. It's not somebody who can relate to you and I and is not actually interested in you and I. Then, of course, you might think that, well, yes, there's a God that exists, but they're actually... That God is antagonistic to life on earth. You know, it's like playing with the ants. You know, you kill a few and kind of... That, that's another picture of God. And then, of course, there are those who actually think there is a God who cares about people. And we'll look at some of these things tonight. We're going to look at a number of lines of evidence for the existence of God. One of them, we're going to talk about the area of origins. Where did I come from? Perhaps... You remember asking this question, or if you've had children or grandchildren, you may have remembered them asking this question, where did I come from? Most people have asked that question at some point in their lives. It reminds me of a, um, a little boy who was in the third grade. He'd come home from school, he had an assignment, and he came into the kitchen and he talked to his mother, who was busy there preparing dinner, and he said to her, Mum, where did I come from? And mum thinks, well, I'm a bit busy. I'm not going to deal with this now. And she just said, well, the stork brought you. Heard that story before. And he goes scurrying out of there and he goes to see grandma, who's sitting in the, the, the chair in the corner of the lounge. And he says, grandma, where did mum come from? And grandma thought, well, I'm not going to get into this. And she says, well, the stork brought her. And then the boy says, well, where did you come from, grandma? And... She said, well, the stork bought me too. And he goes to his room to start writing his assignment for school and he writes, there hasn't been a normal birth in our family for three generations. Because <laughs> you can't fool kids, right? They want to know, where did I come from? When we ask this question, where did I come from, I, we've already mentioned that I grew up in the UK and of course I had a mum and dad in the UK and that's nothing explosive. You have no reason to doubt that that's true. And of course, my parents would have had parents, and their parents would have had parents, and on and on and on. To what point? Um, one of the things that we understand from biology is that life produces life. In other words, we, we don't see spontaneous generation of life. Life comes from living things. That's what we observe. And you need life to produce life. We've never yet been able to produce life in a laboratory from non-living matter. We've never been able to do that. Even with the, the, the masses of our um, 
resources that we have now, the time that we've spent to do that. We've never been able to do that. So life comes from life. And if that's true, and it's always been true, then you would need an infinite source of life from the beginning. Because if all life has come from life at some point, where do you derive life from a non-living source? We've never been able to demonstrate that. So life comes from life, and we can understand that. And that strongly suggests that there is a source of life that gave rise to life, and for many that is God. Another question we could raise from biology is uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And uh, this, is, this is the idea that like produces like. In other words, chickens produce chickens, cats produce cats, and dogs produce, what do you reckon? Dogs, right? And like produces like. Now there may be some variation in colour, in size and so forth, but they're still dogs, they're still cats, they're still chooks. And, uh, of course, even this question is a classic question because it's a question science has not yet been able to answer. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, if you say the chicken, well, where did it come from? (laughs) Well, the obvious answer would have come from an egg. And if you say, well, the egg came first, here's another question. Was the egg fertilised? Because if it wasn't, that's the end of the line. (laughs) If it was, who fertilised the egg? Need a rooster. So the idea that like begets like and life begets like uh, is, is a, an evidence towards the idea that there was a God who created design in the first place. Um, I don't know if you've thought about um, the planet that we live on. We're busy working and scurrying around day by day and we sometimes don't stop to think of the amazing place that we call home. The earth is in a place in the solar system that's called, sometimes referred to as the Goldilocks zone. Anybody ever heard that before? Some of you. And basically what that means is, you know the, the fairy tale of Goldilocks and the three bears, where um, Goldilocks goes in and the bears are out, uh, but there's three bowls of porridge. And one's too hot and one's too cold, but one's just right. And uh, the Goldilocks zone is the idea that the Earth is in just the right place for us to be not too close to the sun as to be too hot like Venus to support life or too far away from the sun like Mars as to be too cold to support life but we're in that just right zone. Not only are we in the just right zone, we have an abundance of liquid water which thus far, uh, for all we know about life, we need liquid water for life to exist. That's why we go looking elsewhere in the universe for the evidence of liquid water because that's where we might find life. But we have an abundance of liquid water. We have, the, you know, the earth is tilted on its axis about 23 degrees, which gives us the seasons that we enjoy through the year. The earth spins on its uh, axis about once every 24 hours. That gives us our day and that gives us a fairly even warming and cooling so that we don't have these extremes of temperatures. In other words, the earth is a place that seems to be very well designed to support life. And we could say, well, maybe that's just an accident. Maybe that's just coincidence. A thought that occurred to me, and uh, we will talk about creation evolution tomorrow. We want to have a whole session on that because I was a thorough evolutionist in the past. And uh, there are some things I believe about evolution and some things I don't believe in about evolution, which we'll talk about tomorrow. But um, if life evolved on Earth 
The question would be, what about the moon? Because the moon also lives in that Goldilocks zone, right? It also dwells in that part of the solar system that is ideal for supporting life. And if the Earth evolved to produce life and evolved with masses of liquid water, 70% of the Earth is still covered in liquid water, why not the moon? If the moon arose at the same time in the same environment under the same conditions, why does it not have... We've been up there six times, six Apollo missions to the moon. No liquid water, not a skerrick of life on the moon. It's an interesting question to ask if we believe that life arose by chance on planet Earth. Why not elsewhere? You see, I think that design is a powerful argument in favour of the existence of God because I think we readily recognise design when we see it. So, for instance, this picture here, you have a, uh, just a rugged mountain range there on the left. On the right-hand side, uh, who knows what that place is? Yeah, Mount Rushmore. I had a, the opportunity to go there a few years ago and uh, you've got four president's heads there carved into the mountain, an enormous task. Um, you can see some of the conifer trees uh, down below the faces to give you a bit of an idea of the scale. Did you know that 95% of the carving was done by dynamite? They would drill holes, put the dynamite in and blow bits off the mountain and uh, you, you want to be careful you didn't blow somebody's nose off or something. You'd have to be careful about how much you put there but 95% was done by dynamite and if you look at those faces and you look at the mountain range on the left, you would obviously conclude, and rightly so, that the one on the right didn't happen just because of the wind and the rain, right? You would conclude that that must have been designed. You've seen faces before and you know that that kind of intricate, complex detail couldn't have arisen just by the wind and the rain, you know, beating down on that rock over a long period of time. You've got Obviously, intelligent people creating that, those, those carvings. The question is, why is it easy for us to recognise design in solid rock, but difficult for us to recognise design in a human face, in a face that's living and breathing and seeing and hearing and you know, chewing and talking, right? Why is it easy for us to say, yes, we could recognise that that's designed, but when we look into a human face, we struggle sometimes to believe that it was designed, and certainly my worldview was very different on that. Ever heard of the anthropic principle? Some of the things we're talking about here, the, uh, the what should we uh, say, the apparent design of planet Earth and the life on it, is sometimes described as the anthropic principle. In other words, it kind of looks as though the world and the universe was made with mankind in mind. It says here, the universe seems to be designed with man in mind. Modern cosmology has identified dozens of measurable characteristics of the universe. Each of these characteristics are fine-tuned to such a degree that moving even one of them in either direction, only a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage, would make the existence of life anywhere in the universe impossible. We would live then not in a life-sustaining universe, but a life-prohibitive universe. There's a lot of these universal force constants, such as a strong nuclear force constant, a weak nuclear force constant, a gravitational force constant, and a whole host of others. And I won't go through them, I'm not a physicist, and some of you may be, I don't know. 
But the point is they've discovered these constants and they, they are so finely tuned that if you moved any of them a fraction, life would not be possible. Not just on planet Earth, but anywhere in the universe. And some have suggested this is strong evidence that the universe was in fact designed. Somebody said, it was. Uh, imagine it like this. Imagine that you were standing up against a brick wall in front, in front of a uh, firing squad. Not a pleasant thought, but imagine it if you will. And you're standing there, they put a blindfold on you and say you've got 30 people with rifles. They put the blindfold on. The general says, ready, aim, fire. And you hear the guns go off, but you suddenly realise you're still alive. And then you, you're not sure what happened. Did they, uh, did they all, uh, were they all bad shots? You know, did they all just fire up into the air? Did they shoot each other? Um, and then you take the blindfold off and you see a whole range of bullet holes around you in a pattern that suggests, strongly suggests, that they missed on purpose. And some have suggested that this is like the anthropic principle. All these finely tuned constants in the universe have missed us. And they've missed us on purpose. Because if they were altered in any way, then we wouldn't exist. So Fred Hoyle was a British astronomer. He said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this question almost beyond question. Oh, this conclusion rather, almost beyond question. So he says... It seems so finely tuned to me, you can't tell me nobody had input into that design. Um, ever watch Catalyst? It's an ABC science show uh, on ABC television. Uh, a couple of years ago, they had a program that dealt with the anthropic principle, and they were interviewing a bunch of scientists to find out what they thought. Why is it, why do we live in such a finely tuned universe, they asked. Well, one scientist said, we just do. That's just the way it is. We just happen to be where we are because we happen to be where we are. Some people felt that that was not a satisfactory answer. Another scientist said, well, it's possible that we live in a multiverse. In other words, the universe that we have, which, by the way, is vast. We're not even sure what the edges of our universe are. We can only see as far as we can see with our best telescopes, but... The idea is that our universe is but one of an infinite number of universes and ours just happens to be the one that sprouted life here on Earth. And uh, the challenge for this, of course, is there is no evidence for the other universes. We're just trying to imply other universes because we're trying to explain the one we're in. Somebody else said, we are really only a virtual reality program. Have you heard this before? that we are actually, we're not really here, you and I, we just, we're a program and we imagine that we're here and we seem to have these experiences, but we're not really having those experiences. But I reckon, you know, I mean, if somebody comes and punches you in the face, that's a real experience. You know, it's not like a, it's not a, a virtual experience, but that's one explanation. And another one, this, I thought this was very creative. Another physicist said this, he says, our descendants in the distant future, this is, this is the answer to the question of why the universe appears to be so designed. Our, our descendants in the distant future 
travelled back in time and tinkered with the laws of physics at the Big Bang. Let that sink in a little bit. Um, I used to watch a lot of science fiction and I was into time travel and all that kind of stuff. But if you think about this, he's saying, uh, our descendants in the distant future, they travel back in time and they tinker with the law of physics. How did you get there in the first place? That's the thing. How did you get to the future in the first place? And that's the problem for that. And when you look at these answers from uh, very well-established scientists in terms of the area of physics, to me, they're obviously missing one other possibility, and that is it looks designed because it is designed. I mean, at least that should be a possibility, right? I mean, that should be, that should be a reasonable possibility. I remember reading uh, this article in 2009 in a British newspaper called the Daily Mail, and uh, it says, why we are born to believe in God. It's wired into the brain, says a psychologist. And this is uh, work done by uh, Professor Bruce Hood. It says, humans are programmed to believe in God because it gives them a better chance of survival, researchers claim. The findings of Bruce Hood, Professor of Developmental Psychology at Bristol, suggest that magical or supernatural beliefs are hardwired into our brains from birth. I want you to think about that. If they're hardwired into our brains from birth, who did the hardwiring? You know, we, um, we'll talk a little bit more about the whole evolution thing tomorrow, but it says his work is supported by other researchers who have found evidence linking religious feelings and experience to particular regions of the brain. Where do they come from? Why are they there? Freedom, uh, sorry, Freeman Dyson, uh, he is a theoretical physicist. He said, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were coming. In other words, he examines the universe and he says, it looks like this whole thing was built for us, that, you know, built with our design in mind. And what's interesting about that is there is a verse in the ancient Hebrew Bible, the ancient Hebrew scriptures, that's similar to this, in that it says this, it says, For thus says the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. In other words, this Bible verse is suggesting that the world was made for a purpose. It was made with the idea of providing a home for human beings. And that's really what Freeman Dyson is suggesting. Well, some have looked at the design of the universe and particularly the design of human life and have even changed their minds from being an atheist. And I'm not just talking about myself, but people much smarter than me. Um, there was a British atheist and philosopher, Anthony Flew. Uh, he uh, was a voice for atheism in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And uh, he wrote a book uh, not too long ago called Instead of There Is No God, he, wrote, he scribbled that out and put There Is A God. And it says there how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And this was all based upon the uh, results of research that had been done in regard to DNA. Notice what he says here. He says in his book, what I think the DNA material has done is that it is shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life. 
that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. The only satisfactory explanation of such end-directed, self-replicating life as we see on Earth is an infinitely intelligent mind. Not just an intelligent mind, but an infinitely intelligent mind. That's the conclusion he came to. He says, it has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of evolution of that first reproducing organism. And his, you know, the line I've uh, highlighted here, I had to go where the evidence leads. And I want to just testify, I guess, from my own perspective that I was an atheist. Uh, I really was an agnostic, I suppose. But in the end, I went where the evidence led. And uh, that's, that's the the reason I became a believer in God. Uh, Bill Gates years ago wrote a book called The Road Ahead and he talked about DNA and he says, DNA is like a computer program but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. So he's talking about what we now know about DNA thanks to modern medical research and he says it's far more complex, far more advanced than any software ever created. Again, in the Hebrew scriptures, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies show his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And what this is basically saying, saying is, the more we study the natural world around us, the more we study the universe, the more complicated, the more complex it appears, and the more brilliantly designed it appears too. And we're seeing that. Charles Darwin, of course, wrote the book The Origin of Species, and um, he wrote that in uh, 1859 it was published. But he wrote a letter some time afterwards, and I want you to get what he, he says in this letter. He says, The horrible doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the minds of lower animals, are of any value or are at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the convictions of a monkey's mind? if there are any convictions in such a mind. In other words, uh, when was the last time, you know, you watched the evening news and they were interviewing a chimpanzee or a gorilla or you might have seen somebody who looks like a gorilla, but they're actually, you know, they're not going to interview the animals, right? Because they're not expecting to get any logical or rational conclusions from animals. And uh, what Darwin is saying is if we did in fact arise from animals, why would we trust the conclusions that our brains come to? Because we wouldn't trust the animals and in fact, you know, we can go back to the amoeba or the single-celled organisms. And um, if, if in fact there is only energy and matter in the universe and it's all undirected, it's all just chance random chemical reactions, then why, why would this conversation even be valuable to us? We, we wouldn't expect there to be rational, logical conclusions that we would bring. Um, Professor Paul Davis is an award-winning scientist. He says, science is based on the assumption that the universe is thoroughly rational and logical at every level. Atheists claim that the laws of nature exist reasonlessly and that the universe is ultimately absurd. As a scientist, I find this hard to accept. There must be 
an unchanging rational ground in which the logical orderly nature of the universe is rooted. And he's just saying it doesn't make sense if you say, well, we just got here by a bunch of accidents to see the order that we see in our world and in our universe. It's an interesting point that he makes. H.S. Lipson wrote some years ago, he was professor of physics at Manchester, he says, in fact, evolution became, in a sense, scientific, a scientific religion. Almost all scientists have accepted it and many are prepared to bend their observations to fit in with it. In other words, the idea of the evolutionary process is so embedded now in education and in science that even when observations occur that don't seem to match that model, we've got to find some way of fitting them into that model because that's the established model now. We have to sort of accept that that's the way things are. But other, there are some who say, no, it doesn't make sense. The model has to change. Harris poll, um, there was a Harris poll in the United States a few years ago, and they conducted a poll on origins and asked people, uh, did, uh, well, they asked people, did humans evolve from lower animals, yes or no? Okay. So yes, humans did evolve from lower animals, or no, humans did not evolve from lower animals. In 1994, these were the results. 44% said yes, we did evolve from lower animals. 46% said no. They did the same survey again in 2005, and the results were thus. In other words, 38% now said yes, and 54% said no. And this is interesting because it seems that the figures are running against what you would expect from secular education. You know, if, when I went to school, went to state school, primary school, junior school, high school, all taught evolution. That's all I was taught in terms of origins. And yet there are people who are saying after a 10-year gap that there are more people saying they no longer believe that we evolved from lower animals. And this is interesting. I think a lot, a lot of it has to do with some of the evidence that science is now revealing. Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of DNA, he says, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. Could we take out the word almost? Is it almost a miracle or is it actually a miracle? And, uh, you know, I think that, again, the science is pointing in that direction. I think the longer we hang around, the more we will discover the marvels of life and how it was, uh, I believe, it points to a designer. Because if life was designed, then obviously that suggests strongly that there is a designer. I guess, particularly in the last 20, 25 years, there's been quite a strong offensive from the atheist camp in regard to uh, not only origins, but the philosophy of atheism versus theism. Um, they, they were called the new atheists. I guess they're not that new anymore because they've been around for a while. And Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. Christopher Hitchens, of course, uh, has recently passed away. He's no longer with us, sadly. But um, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, they're both uh, British uh, philosophers and scientists, and then Sam Harris is an American. And uh, what's new about the new atheists is not so much their arguments. Their arguments from philosophy or science are pretty much the same arguments that were being used 50 years ago. They're not really new arguments, but what is new is that 
the new atheists believe and purport that if we drop God from our culture, from our society, from Western society, then not only will there be no damage, but actually society might get better. If we get rid of God and our ideas about God, our false ideas about God, then society would be better or at least, or at least not worse off. And uh, that wasn't true of some of the former atheists. They recognised that if you were going to get rid of God, then you have to get rid of a whole series of values that have been built up in the Western world around the idea that God exists. So, for instance, uh, existentialist Albert Camus admitted that the death of God meant the loss of purpose, joy, and everything that makes life worth living. He recognised that he was an atheist, but he recognised, he just said, look, I don't believe that there's a God, but I recognise that not having God in the picture means that we have to do away with, or we're going to lose, a lot of these other things that are attached to God, like purpose, joy, and everything that makes life worth living. Uh, John F. Hort wrote a book, he, he wrote a book called God and the New Atheism, and this is what he, he says about the likes of, of Dawkins and others. He says, the new softcore atheists assume that by dint of Darwinism we can just drop God like Santa Claus without having to witness the, the complete collapse of Western culture, including our sense of what is rational and moral. At least the hardcore atheists understood that if we were truly sincere in our atheism, the whole web of meanings and values that had clustered around the idea of God in Western culture has to go down the drain with its organising centre. You see, what he's saying is that if it's true that we live in a universe with only matter and energy, then we are simply bags of chemicals wandering around. We might bump into another bag of chemicals, mate with that bag of chemicals, produce another bag of chemicals. Or, and he sort of suggests that Things like things that we value as human beings, things like love. We believe in love. We believe that love is important. We need to love. We need to be loved. But that suggestion would suggest that love is no more important than, say, indigestion. Indigestion is a chemical reaction in the body. And, you know, when you have an attraction to somebody and your pulse beats a little faster or you start to perspire, or those things are, are of no more value than indigestion. And I think that as human beings, we realise in our experience of life that I think it is more important than indigestion. And I think that there are a whole host of values uh, that we have because of a belief in God that you don't have if you don't have God in the picture. I mean, the, the, the reality is if we're just uh, matter and energy, we're born, we live a little while, we die and that's it. And it's hard to find out what the purpose, what your purpose, what your meaning of life is in that scenario. Time magazine asked the question, once evil, does it exist or do bad things just happen? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? How do we determine that? In fact, is there anything that is either right or wrong? How do you know? What might be right for you might be wrong for somebody else. How do we determine what right and wrong is? And morality is heavily tied to this also. 
Uh, I won't read out all of this story, but there was a new story on uh, ABC not so long ago about a British couple who had uh, started a house fire in which their six kids were in the house. They deliberately set fire to the house, get rid of their kids. And uh, the judge had said uh, that the gentleman was a, uh, a seriously disturbing and dangerous man. And she says, you have no moral compass, she told him. But the question is, where does such a moral compass come from? Why do we expect people to have a moral compass? And uh, more and more we're seeing people uh, take actions that are uh, uh, horrific to some, but doesn't seem to phase others. Um, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called um, River Out of Eden. And in the book he said this, he said, in the universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, that's the universe he believes in, right? In the universe of physical forces and blind, uh, sorry, and, sorry, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is a bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good. It would be hard to watch the evening news for a week and conclude there's no evil, right? You know, I, I, and it would be hard to live in a society with real living people and conclude there is no good either. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, he says. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. And I want you to think about that, because sometimes horrific crimes are committed. And I don't know what judge would buy the idea of a defendant whose defence was, I'm just dancing to my DNA. In other words... You know, you could argue if, if you do believe that we are purposeless and that we live in a universe of purely uh, matter and energy, that nobody else has the right to tell me what's right and wrong. Nobody has the right to tell me how I should live my life, right? I mean, what right does anybody have to arrest me and put me in a cell? What, what right does that person have over me if, in fact, we live in a universe of just matter and energy. There is no genuine authority. And uh, I think there is a, a serious challenge, I think, to, to Dawkins' point. He actually had a campaign. You could have called it an evangelistic campaign, I guess, for atheism, where he had these um, double-decker buses in London with the sign on the, uh, the side there, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. I find it interesting to use the word probably. You know, he's not certain. There's probably no God. But you see, some have pointed out that it's the very fact that there is God that allows certain people to enjoy their life. In fact, if we didn't have God, would we indeed stop worrying or would there be other things to worry about? David Belinsky uh, wrote a book called The Devil's Delusions, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. He says... In his book, he says, what Hitler did not believe and what Stalin did not believe and what Mao did not believe and what the SS did not believe and what the Gestapo did not believe was that God was watching what they were doing. They did not believe that. And that allowed them to carry out 
atrocious crimes against humanity because they didn't have God anywhere in their picture. Well, it seems to be important to us to ask the question, are we alone? Is there anybody out there? We want to know, is this the only planet in the universe that has life? Uh, I believe there is life elsewhere in the universe, but we're asking this question, we're looking for concrete proof. And uh, it was interesting, in 2013, the BBC News had this article. Maybe you've heard about um, NASA have a, had a program called SETI, which was a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You heard of that? They had that you know, they point their uh, dishes to the sky and they were listening for intelligent signals from out there. Well, the British decided they better get in, into the act in 2013. And uh, in this BBC News report, it says, British scientists are to make a conservative effort to look for alien life among the stars. The scientists believe it is time UK effort was properly coordinated. And get this quote. There are billions of planets out there. It would be remiss of us not to at least have half an ear open to any signals that might be being sent to us. And I look at that and I wonder, is it possible that there is a God in the universe and that he is actually attempted to contact us? But we don't have half an ear open to listening. Because maybe we don't like the message. Maybe you want to hear something different. Is it possible that there's a God in the universe who actually is trying to send messages through to planet Earth, but we're no longer listening? Mm. George Harrison, one of the Beatles, of course, and you know George Harrison had experienced, uh, I guess, the top of the mountain. He'd experienced what it was like to be world famous, to be very wealthy, to be very successful with the Beatles. But uh, he came... A few uh, years after that experience, and he says, for every human there is a quest to find the answer to why I am here. Who am I? Where did I come from and where am I going? For me, that became the most important thing in my life. Everything else is secondary. And I kind of agree with George on that one, that that really is, to me, now, the most important thing. Who am I really as a human being? Where did I come from and where am I going? How should I live here on earth? Maybe you heard of a mathematician called Blaise Pascal. And uh, he put forth an argument which has become known as Pascal's wager. And uh, he actually was a skeptic. He didn't believe in God. He wasn't a follower of God. But through, he actually claims that he came to God through mathematics. And he puts it like this. He wrote this. This is the 17th century. He says, God either exists or he doesn't. And uh, let's pause there for a minute, because that's true. God doesn't exist just on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. He's either always there or he's not there at all, right? And sometimes we want to put God out of the picture when he's inconvenient, but we want to bring him back into the picture when we want the values that come with God. But he says here, God either exists or he doesn't. Based on the testimony of general revelation, that's what he called nature, and special revelation, which he called the Bible, it is safe to assume that God does in fact exist. Now, I want you to grasp what he says there. It's safe to assume. We're going to see why it's safe. It says, it is abundantly fair to concede that there is at least a 50% chance that God exists. Therefore, since we stand to gain eternity and thus infinity, the wise or safe choice 
is to live as though he does exist. If we are right, we gain everything and lose nothing. If we are wrong, we lose nothing and gain nothing. Do you see his point? His point is that if there is a God who exists and if that God even has a remote possibility of extending the lives that we typically lead, wouldn't it be worth investigating that? Wouldn't it be worth checking that out to find out if God is for real? Right? He's saying it makes all the sense in the world to to check that out because you don't lose anything. We only have this life if, in fact, God doesn't exist. Alastair McGrath, you may, uh, when we referred to Richard Dawkins before, Richard Dawkins wrote a book which I've read called the, the uh, what was it called, The God Delusion, right? He wrote a book called The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins works at Oxford University. Another man who works at Oxford University is Alastair McGrath. Alastair McGrath wrote a book called The Dawkins Delusion because he wanted to meet some of the challenges that Richard had laid down in his book. And... Uh, Alistair McGrath shares some of his own story here. He says, Although I was passionately and totally persuaded of the truth of atheism as a young man, I subsequently found myself persuaded that Christianity was a much more interesting and intellectually uh, exciting worldview than atheism. Here's a man who grew up and was committed to atheism. But like the philosopher before that we talked about, Anthony Flew, he changed his mind. I grew up saying that I was an atheist. But my experience of life and the things that I've learned in the last 20 years have changed my mind on that. And we can do that. We can change our mind. It seems important to us to know who we are as human beings. Where did we come from? We have shows like Who Do You Think You Are? We want to find out where we came from in the distant, sorry, in the recent past. But what about in the, de- the, the distant past as well. How much do we really know? I was reminded of uh, a friend of mine. He uh, was doing similar kinds of presentations to the ones we're going to do in this series. And he went to Hungary just after the Iron Curtain had fell. And he went to that country and presented some meetings. And he was due to speak at a university campus and the university campus had been a very uh, atheistic you know, university campus and the idea was that he had been invited to go there and he was going to go and speak for an hour on evidence for the existence of God and then one of the professors from the university who was an atheist was going to speak for an hour on the evidence as to why there is not a God. Well when Mark got there somehow the other guy was detained or delayed and he couldn't make it. He wasn't going to come. And they said, would you be able to speak for two hours? And he says, sure. And so he begins his presentation. And the audience is basically filled with students and university lecturers who are pretty committed atheists. They've believed in atheism, if you can believe in atheism, um, for a long, long time. And he's speaking away. And one of the students gets up after about 10 minutes and says, You're talking as though God exists. We don't believe that God exists. And he stood there and he thought, how should I I respond to this? And he said, "Um, what is the subject that you are studying? And I don't know what it was. It might have been physics, so let's say that it was physics. And he said, well, how many books that have been printed this year 
on the subject of physics have you personally read? And he said, I don't know, hardly any. Well, how many books on the subject of physics that have ever been published have you personally read? Very few. How many books in the area of biology that have ever been printed have you personally read? How many books on the area of chemistry or the area of music or the area of languages have you... How many of the dynasties of China have you studied? And he would ask him these various questions and obviously the student was saying, well, hardly any. And Mark said to him, would it be fair to say that of all the knowledge in all the world, in the history of the world, you know less than 5%? And he said... Sure. Now, of course, we all know less than 1%, right? <laughs> a lot less than 1%. And then he said to him, is it possible then that God exists in the 95% of knowledge you admit that you have no knowledge of? And he said, yes, I have to admit that that's the case. And so he says, you know, and then he says, look, if life was, you're born for a while, you live a meaningless life and you die and that's the end and that's all there is to life. If you could choose that or you could choose a life of purpose, a life where you were cared for and you cared about others, a life where you knew that when that life came to an end there was still more life to come. If you could choose between those two, let's suppose for a moment that those two options existed, if you could choose between the two, which one would you choose? He said, I'd choose the latter. He says, you're not an atheist. You're an intelligent man looking for answers. And I think that at the end of the day, how much do we know? We know very, very little. I'm not standing up here today or tomorrow telling you I know a lot of stuff. I don't. But I've discovered certain things. And it's like if you've met somebody, you can't not have met them anymore. And I had an encounter with God that changed my perspective and I began to research the implications of what it meant to have a God in the universe. And I changed my mind on that subject. I was presenting this series in a community centre, another part of Australia. And there was a uh, skateboard ramp at the back. And on the skateboard ramp, I have no idea who wrote this or what they were saying, but it says, I want to believe. I think there are a lot of people who want to believe, but they want evidence upon which to base their faith, upon evidence upon which to base their belief. Where did our world come from? There are two basic ideas. Where does life come from? What do our lives really mean? We could choose atheism. I've understood what a little bit of that is like. Or we could explore the possibility that actually God might be for real. And that's what we're going to explore in this series. And what I would want to ask you at this point is if it were possible to know the answer to the question, is God for real? If it was possible to know, how many of you would want to just say, I'd want to know? That's all I'm asking, I'd want to know. Then I'm happy you're here and I'm happy to share this journey with you because that's what we're really going to explore. We want to explore, is God in fact for real?